Each week we have been studying different aspects of the Christmas story, specifically as it relates to this title that's given to Jesus, namely the title of Emmanuel, or God with us. Today we'll be in the Gospel of John, verses 1 uh, through approximately 14. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. What do you know about God? Do you know God? Is God knowable? Are we simply, as beings longing for meaning and purpose, simply making up this idea of God? When art and beauty speak to our souls, who are we singing to in joy and celebration? And in pain and in turmoil, who are we crying out to for help and peace? The longing for God is something that all of us, thoughtful people, and I know many of you, many of you are thoughtful people, it is something that thoughtful people wrestle with consistently. How do we know God? What's God like? How do we meet God? Is this all just a figment of our imagination? Why does my soul seem to long for something? Eternal. Madeline Langle, who wrote the book Wrinkle in Time, who will also, uh, I think it's being made into a movie next year, she wrote about many things, and one of the things as an artist that she did, as a writer, was that she explored her theology, or to put it another way, she explored the answers to those questions through her art, through her writing. The book Wrinkle in Time seeks to pursue this idea of how is it that evil is overcome? How is darkness overcome? And as a thinker and as an artist, she investigates and explores and expresses these things through her writing, just like C.S. Lewis or uh, did through many books like Chronicles of Narnia or Terrence Malick, uh, who's a Christian uh, movie maker who uses his movies to explore his theology and his understanding of God. But Madeline Langle, before she passed, gave an interview. And it might sound intriguing at first, but I hope that you'll bear with me. She says this. Theology does not say enough about God. It tries. The German theologians, and she's right, she's from the 50s and 60s where German theologians were kind of a big deal. The German theologians, well, they try very hard, she says. I don't much like German theologians. They are useful for one thing, insomnia. You see, at the time, I was asking big questions and finding no answers. She goes on to say, about these German theologians... They are dealing with things in terms of facts, that which should only be dealt with in terms of fantasy. And so I read Einstein, who said this, anyone who is not lost in rapturous awe at the power and glory of the mind behind the universe is as good as a burnt-out candle. And so I read particle physics and quantum mechanics And I read them for theology, for they speak to the nature of being. Now, Madeline Langle had some interesting views and differing opinions. She uh, was a wonderful thinker. 
While there are many things that I might disagree with her on, one of the things that I love about this quote is this reality. When we are speaking of the nature of God, too often we speak in terms of bullet points and creeds rather than song and story. When she says that the theologians err in the fact that they are speaking in terms of fact and not fantasy, she's not saying a land of truth and make-believe. What she's saying is, is that you need more than just bullet points to examine and explore the nature of God. You see, for many of us now, today, we, we like dealing in terms of what can I put into bullet points? And we lose for many of us, the delight of the ever-expansive, unreachable, inexhaustible joy of knowing the Lord more and more each day. Our desires for knowing our deeply embedded curiosities will always be delighted in the king of the cosmos and will never be satisfied fully. For those of us that delight to be curious, that is good news. All theology terminates in mystery. All thinking about God reaches some level in which we simply say, I do not know, but I rejoice in the mystery. We get this sense, and I love Angle because, Angle because one of the things that she does is she says, I stopped reading the German theologians, and I started reading Einstein. Now, if you've ever read Einstein, it's no walk in the park. I've never read Einstein and been brought to singing. <laughs> but I am glad that she did. Because what it is speaking to is this, that everything, quantum mechanics and hymnals, are all singing a song. They are all pointing to something. We get the sense as we examine and as we think that the universe is pointing to something, whether it be fact or fantasy, whether it be science or religion, whether it be quantum physics or Beethoven's fifth. When we reflect upon these things, we see that they are pointing to something. And the message of Jesus is that all of these things are not pointing to something, but someone. The Word become flesh. The transcendent God become eminent man. The bringer of truth is the bringer of grace. The powerful, creating God of the universe present with us. In John chapter 1, it speaks to this reality that all of the universe is pointing to someone. I'm going to read it. This, I'm going to do John 1, 1 through 5, and then we're going to skip over the John the Baptist part, so we'll go 9 through 14. We'll have it up on the screen too here, which you can read along. John 1, 1 through 5, and 9 through 14. In the beginning, TV time out. If, uh, if you've ever read the book of Genesis, it starts with uh, three, three words. Um, does anybody know what those three words are? In the beginning. The, the gospel of John starts with uh, three words. Anybody know what they are? In the beginning. Okay, John's doing something. The author here is intentionally 
using these words to point us to something. You see? Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now here we go, verse 14. If you're an underlining person, or if you have a digital device, a highlighting person, I would strongly suggest John 1, 14. I'll show you why in a minute. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Now, some of us might be wondering, I thought we were here talking about Christmas. In fact, you might even say, I thought we were here talking about Christmas. Yeah, we are talking about Christmas. I'm glad you brought that up. Because Matthew and Luke, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they give an earthly perspective of the Christmas account. But the Gospel of John gives the cosmic perspective of the Christmas account. In fact, I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you in your readings, for those of you that follow after Jesus and read the scriptures around Christmas time, incorporate John 1, 1 through 14 into those readings of Christmas, for it gives a grand perspective. We're going to go through this text, and I'm going to give us some observations, then we're going to sing and conclude the day. The word. In the beginning was the word. Now, how do you know somebody? How do you know somebody? I, I um, might shock many of you. I actually go to the gym quite frequently. Um, it's a great place to hang out. And uh, I didn't say I work out. I just go there. Um, and one of the things that you do when you go to a gym or a grocery store or your school or your workplace is there's a bunch of people that you see, right? And you might even go frequently and you might see those people frequently. In fact, you might even recognize them in another place, saying, oh, I think, I think I recognize that person, right? But if you, if you were to be asked the question, oh, you recognize them, do you know them? You would say, no, I just recognize them. I've seen them before, I recognize them from this other place. You see, in order to know someone, what do you have to do? You have to exchange, come on now, you have to exchange words. How do you know someone? You only know someone if you communicate with someone, and communication is the exchange, whether it's on paper, text, uh, digitally, or verbally. You have to exchange words. You never truly know someone until they speak with you. Y'all with me? Is that true? This is, this is, we're gonna, it's going to be a long 25 minutes if y'all ain't with me, okay? Y'all with me? You want to know somebody, you got to what? You got to use your words. So we ask the question, how do I know God? Some of us ask the question, uh, God, are you there? Would you speak to me? 
And God tells us here in John 1 that he will speak to us through his son. Now, here's what's interesting. How is it that a creator communicates with his creation? You see, we, we walk around, we say, God, would you give me a sign? Would you just speak to me? Would you just say something to me? And even when God does audibly speak to people, which is rare, by the way, at least from the best I can tell, most of the time what happens? We say, was that indigestion? Or was that God speaking to me? You see, we need a fuller word from God than just the audible noise. I want God to speak to me. How is it that God speaks to us? If we're truly listening, and by the way, I would ask, if God spoke to you, would you listen? Are you listening to God? How is it that God would uh, speak to us? Well, Christianity distinguishes itself from all other worldviews in one unique and interesting way. It's called the incarnation. Y'all ever had carne asada? It is delicious. What is carne asada? It's meat. The incarnation is God taking on what? Meat. Taking on flesh. The word became flesh. God took on flesh. How is God speaking to us? Christianity is unique in that it is God with us that is the message from on high. Not God away from us. Not God dramatically apart from us. Not God indifferent to us. The message of the universe is not God is us. You see, many of us are walking around today saying, you know, aren't we all just God? If that's true, we're in a world of trouble. Because I know most of you, and if I need to rest in your promises for my long-term and eternal peace and flourishing, I will find no rest. It rained a little bit, and almost all of us were like nervous about driving. We can't even handle driving, much less the cosmos. Hmm? The message from on high is not God away from us, not God indifferent towards us, not God is us. Moreover, it's not God abusive against us. You see, many, uh, many of us will say, well, you know, this whole Jesus thing is, you know, it's really not that unique. Because there are countless myths and legends of God taking on flesh. Zeus, the Caesars were worshipped as God in the flesh, the pharaohs. But here's one interesting difference. Number one, none of those people rose from the grave. Number two, none of them were born in a manger. For they, the myth was that, they, that God took on flesh, whether it be Zeus or Caesar or Pharaoh, and they were not God away from us. They were God abusive towards us, you see. The gods of Caesar, the myths of Caesar and Pharaoh and Zeus They were not gods who served, but rather gods who abused. And we have this myth of Christianity. Now, for those of us that maybe uh, have never heard that statement before, we might gasp. We're going to try that again. Uh, We have before us this myth of Christianity. (laughs) You don't say gasp when you gasp, you just gasp. 
Madeline Langle, in, a wrinkle, uh, in her interview, she was the author of Wrinkle in Time, did you catch what she said? That we're too busy talking about God in terms of facts and not fantasy. And she didn't mean make-believe. What she meant is the fantastic genre of literature, like Chronicles of Narnia or uh, Lord of the Rings. And to put it another way, we're speaking of God in terms too often of bullet points and not myth. And the reason I say myth is not to say that it's false. In fact, I've staked my life on the fact that it is not. But myth is a story of our origin and our future. A myth is not necessarily something that's inherently false. It is a story of our origins and our future. C.S. Lewis says this in his book, God in the Dock. Now, as myth transcends thought, the incarnation, what's that mean again? The incarnation, God in the flesh, transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a Balder, who was a, North, uh, a Norse uh, myth, or an Osiris, which was an Egyptian myth, dying, nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be a myth, and that is the miracle. Lewis is trying to recapture our imagination. Everything in the universe is pointing to someone. And our literature and our songwriting and our movie making, it's pointing somewhere. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, God becoming flesh is not necessarily a new idea. We see it in Zeus, Osiris, etc. But dwelling among us. You see, Christmas is magnificent, if you think about it. For it's a manger that God chooses to dwell. What is he saying? That's a word. You see, when you're speaking to someone, sometimes when you're trying to communicate fact to somebody, you're trying to communicate truth to someone, and the words begin to fail, right? If you're trying to show somebody how to do a a function, you say, okay, you know, have you ever done that before? You're trying to communicate to somebody at work, hey, here's how you do this. And then you communicate that maybe over the phone or in an email, and then they come up to you and they're like, hey, I don't get it. Can you show me how to do it? Can you show me the truth? Okay, the words are beginning to fail. I'm not capable as the recipient of this information of processing all that data. I need you not just to tell me, I need you to show me. The word became what? Flesh. And then what? Dwelt. God, I need you to speak to me. And God's response, not only am I going to speak to you, I'm going to show you. The entirety of Christ's life is a word from God. It's God communicating, not only through Jesus' words, not only through his teaching, but through every aspect of his life. That is all God speaking by showing, speaking to us by showing us who he is. 
I need you to show me. It dwells among us. Now that word dwells among us, it's one of the interesting ways that you could translate that word from the original, which was in Greek, is not he dwelt among us, but he tabernacled among us. Now that's a weird word. Where's tabernacle come from? I'm glad you asked. If you go back, remember I said that the Gospel of John begins with three words in the beginning. If you go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, and then you you fast forward a little bit to the book of Exodus, you remember when Charlton Heston freed the Jews from uh, Pharaoh's uh, reign? Remember that? Yeah, and then he started the NRA. Um, Yeah, so uh, Moses, played by Charlton Heston in the movie, Ten Commandments, right? So Moses goes to Egypt, let my people go, and then they go. And then they wander about. And one of the questions that continues to come up consistently in the book of Exodus is this. God saved us, but is God still with us? Is God going to be faithful to us? Is God with me? And one of the ways that God answered that question was the thing, this this place in the middle of the camp called the, you're never going to guess, tabernacle. And the tabernacle was, the, was where God's presence dwelt. And there was all sorts of rules and restrictions on how the, temple, uh, the tabernacle could be uh, treated. And eventually the tabernacle gives way to the temple. But there, if you were a Jewish person wandering around, wondering, is God with me? One of the answers, one of the things that your peers would point to is the presence of God in the tabernacle. So when John, in the Gospel of John, says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, he's trying to say something to you. Yeah, I mean, the Gospel of John is full of citations and allusions to the whole history that God records for us in the Older Testament. You got that in the beginning part, then you get this tabernacle part. You might even be getting the sense that the whole of the Old Testament is actually pointing to something Or someone. Emmanuel means God. The word became flesh and dwelt with us. Tabernacled with us. Now, for those of you that follow after Jesus, uh, like, do you know that? I don't mean do you know it, bullet point. I mean do you know it in the true myth sense? Do you know it? Are you enraptured by it? Uh, Einstein, if he can say, if Einstein can say this, anyone who is not lost in rapturous awe at the power and glory of the mind behind the universe is as good as a burnt out candle. Are you enraptured by the God who dwells among us? The word became flesh and dwell among us. Stop making Christmas about a good moral story to tell our kids. Stop making Christmas about mere tradition and nostalgia. Stop making Christmas about the songs that bring your heart joy because you remember sitting by the fire. Remember that Christmas is a magnificent representation and a reminder of the myth become fact, God dwelling with us. When you pass by those little nativities, do not dare say, how cute. There's a song, O Holy Night, and one of the lyrics goes like this. Fall on your knees. 
rapturous awe. For we observed his glory, goes on to say. The story of the Gospels is the story of God becoming king. Thy kingdom, oh, uh, when Jesus taught us how to pray, one of the lyrics or one of the lines was, thy kingdom, what? It's the inauguration. This king's inauguration took place not in a palace, but in a stable. Jesus is unique in that he does not say, follow me because I'm going to point you to the way. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. All other religious leaders say, follow me and I will point you to the way. Jesus says, you don't need to do that. I am the way. I'm God among you. I'm God dwelling with you. I'm the incarnated God. You want a word from the Lord? It's Jesus. You want to know what God's like? It's Jesus. You want to know what God's doing with the universe? It's Jesus. You want to know where your dignity, worth, and value stem from? You find that in the word of God become flesh, Jesus. The myth become fact, the one to whom we sing, the one to whom all of the universe is pointing. Christmas is a reminder of these truths. We observe glory. And he is full of grace and truth. Let's bring this home. Grace and truth. Say it with me. Grace and truth. I've just got a few thoughts. You are a part of this story, but you are not the primary actor in this play. This story is not about you, and it's not about me. It's about the word become flesh. It's all about the glory of God. We wrestle. We are frustrated. We struggle consistently, day in and day out, striving to make everything about me. We find ourselves frequently disappointed because we view the story of the universe as our story. But dare I say, in three generations, you will not be remembered. Your great-great-grandchildren, when asked, can you name your great-great-grandparents, will not be able to recall your name to memory. If we are the center of the story, there is no reason to sing. We observed his glory full of grace and truth. Just a few thoughts. I keep hearing about the war on Christmas. Like, Herod had all the boys to and under slaughtered. That was the first part of the war on Christmas. Like, the idea that God comes into the world, not in a palace, but in a manger. The powers of this world are constantly at war against that. Okay? So I want to say there is a war on Christmas. But to the best of my knowledge, if someone, if my neighbor says to me, happy holidays, I do not think I've been invaded. Uh, I just want to. I just want to encourage you in this. Uh, I, I heard somebody say uh, the other day. You know, someone said to them, "Happy holidays," and they said, "No, Merry Christmas." And I thought, okay, mm. <laughs> what's Christmas about? Well, it's about the King and Creator of the universe who holds the universe together with the word of His power, coming not in military might or political power, but coming as a babe in a meek, mild, tender. When we say Merry Christmas, we are saying that if we use bombast or arrogance or aggressiveness, that might actually be the opposite of what Christmas is about, friends. 
I would just encourage you, stop worrying about what people say. Start thinking about bringing Christ into your life and reflecting Christ to all who you come into contact with. Hey, you know what? Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. <laughs> I'm not as worried about Christ being in the Christmas celebrations of others. I'm more concerned about Christ being the center of my heart. That's a big enough struggle for me. I'm not worried about y'all. Well, I am worried about y'all, but... <laughs> it also reminds us of the mission of the church. Discipleship. Jesus Christ calls us to go into all the world and make disciples. Discipleship is sharing the story. God has spoken to us this magnificent word, this grand myth become fact, this grand story. When we share that with others, we're inviting them in to hear a word from the Lord. It also gives us an anchor in the midst of chaos. This time of year especially, I think we sense the chaos around us. And yet there is an anchor I just, I just, okay. Our God, our creator, could have said anything to us. Like anything, right? Is that right? Like he could have left some stuff in, taken some stuff out, and yet our God has been so gracious to affirm and to promise and to confirm through the resurrection of Jesus the end of the story. Which means that in the midst of chaos, when everything seems to be unraveling, everything seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, I know that I'm a part of a story that is authored and secured by God. I know the end of the story, so I don't have to lose my mind. It gives me an anchor in the midst of chaos. Christmas reminds me that ultimately this is not my story. I am not the author. He is the author. It's his story, and he promises good to me. For those of us that are still trying to figure this Jesus thing out, I would encourage you in this, that the magnificence of Christmas, the awe and wonder that you have a sense of or an inclination of, it's a confirmation that your longing and your seeking is going in the right direction. There is inexhaustible myth, true myth. There is inexhaustible true myth and wonder and awe in Jesus. And your exploration will not end when you join a church. There is infinite mystery and wonder to be found in our King and Creator. But in this moment, you're maybe asking, is this whole Jesus thing legitimate? I'm st I don't know which way to go with it. You are longing in the right direction. Amen. And I would encourage you, especially in this Christmas season, to take a chance. Maybe even pray. I know not all of us are praying people, but maybe even pray, Lord, if you're there, would you apply that word to me? Would you help me to see this word that you have spoken? And finally, hmm, we've had about, uh, well, now six deaths in the congregation just in the last few weeks. And I know that for many of us, especially November and December, for those of us that have lost family, parents, children, loved ones, the empty seats at the table, it can be especially hard. And the Lord has spoken a word to you through his son, Jesus. 
that that suffering is not meaningless. You see, the word that the Lord has spoken to us through his son is not why did this particular evil come to my doorstep, but rather the word spoken is this, it is not in vain. For the word spoken to us begins at Christmas. Among whom he dwelt, killed him. We mustn't forget that following Christmas comes Good Friday that the God of the universe suffered at the hands of his own creation. Dorothy Sayers, an author, she she was an author from Britain in the early 1900s, and she said this, and I'll paraphrase, whatever God is doing, whatever reason he has for bringing about in our lives, or at least allowing pain, suffering, and torment, he has had the integrity to take his own medicine. For God suffered on our behalf. So for whatever reason that God has allowed the suffering in your life, which I don't know, I do know this, because of the word that God has spoken, it is not without reason. And it is not in vain. And moreover, he is not away from you. Rather, he is present in your pain. For we mustn't forget that following Christmas comes Good Friday. But more than that, following Good Friday, Easter, that Christ is risen. He is risen from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death, assuring us that this grand story, this word that he has spoken, is true and sure. Would you join me as we pray?